When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. As 2021 comes to a close, I'm taking this month to share some of my favorite episodes of the last year. In 2020, I produced 51 episodes, and this year I've produced 48. And to tell you the truth, I just need a little rest. It's a really heavy lift every week, so this month I'm resharing some episodes that really moved me. This interview with Diane Seuss first aired in June 2021, and I just loved how she can see her story anew each time she writes a new poem. If you haven't heard it, you're in for a treat. If you have, I'm sure there will be a new takeaway. Thanks for listening and on to the show. This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. Coming up, an interview with Diane Seuss, author of the poetry collection, Frank, Sonnets. And in fact, if I've gotten older, I notice I'm less at the mercy of my feelings because of having had a writing practice most of my life. We'll be back with Diane Seuss in just a bit. First, I want to say to you, thank you for listening. The episode you're about to tune into represents eight plus years of dedication and perseverance for producing this show. In addition to conversations that go into depth about a writer's work and obsessions, this show and every interview it features aims to embody the values of honesty, vulnerability, curiosity, and connection. I invite you to join me in this journey as a First Draft patron, which gives you access to cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, ad-free, pitch-free episodes, and writing tips from my guests. You can become a supporter by going to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash firstdraftwriters. Any amount is welcome, but for $6 a month, you receive thank you gifts on a monthly basis. Plus, when you donate to First Draft, you are joining the community of writers and readers who support conversations like the one you are about to hear. With your donation, you are saying yes to continuing the space of honesty, vulnerability, curiosity, and connection that each show reaches to achieve. You are the scaffolding that holds up this platform that shares the insights and challenges of the writing life. So please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. And let's be honest, there is so much free content out there. In fact, what you are about to listen to is free, but it is not without expense in hard costs and labor to make. Don't get me wrong, producing these interviews is indeed a labor of love, but there is an incredible amount of labor involved, time and effort, planning and schedule wrangling across time zones, from Colorado to New York to London to Tel Aviv to Auckland and back again. And it all adds up to the creation of this show and the archive, which has more than 300 episodes you can dive into. I put so much care and effort into this show, and I hope you can tell with every episode. 
The process begins when I select a book, contact the author, schedule the interview. Then I read the book, take notes, conduct research, have the conversation, and edit the show. This takes equipment, organization, more late nights than you can imagine, and a lot of heart and sweat to come to fruition each week. And there is no staff. I am the show from start to finish. I know you may not be in front of a computer right now, so why not write a note on your hand or set the alarm on your phone to remind yourself to donate to First Draft when you get home? Please beat the odds of having to listen to this seven times before you join the First Draft community. Go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Please stay tuned at the end of this show. I'll offer recommendations on an episode in the archive that is similar to the one you're about to hear. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell everyone you know to subscribe. And thank you for your support and for being here with me today, right now, in this moment, and on to the show. My guest today is Diane Seuss, the author of five books of poetry, including Frank Sonnets, Four-Legged Girl, Still Life with Two Dead Peacocks and a Girl, It Blows You Hollow, and Wolf Lake, White Gown, Blown Open, recipient of the Juniper Prize for Poetry. Seuss was born in Michigan City, Indiana, and grew up in Michigan. She studied at Kalamazoo College and Western Michigan University, where she received her master's degree in social work. Seuss is a Guggenheim Fellow and is currently writer-in-residence at Kalamazoo College, where she has been on the faculty since 1988. Her poetry collection, Frank Sonnets, is a memoir told in poetry. Seuss uses and expands the sonnet form to explore her working-class childhood in rural Michigan, her coming of age and facing articulated dangers in New York City, motherhood, beauty, death, and sickness. The reader is taken on a soulful journey with Seuss as she probes her life in a way that exposes moments of revelation alongside questions that may not yet have answers. We began the discussion with me asking Diane Seuss this question. When you were putting this together, did you make discoveries about your life or about how things connected that you never had before because you were writing it this way? This is my fifth book. And so I think in terms of my own psychological work and my own work inside myself, I saw the connections, but that's different from making those connections in language across the landscape of a book. And I've made those connections in other books, but working in the sonnet form, working this way, being overt about considering this a kind of memoir, that changed, I think, how how I was making those connections. And there's something about the sonnet because it's 14 lines. So every poem in the book is 14 lines long. So every incident I cover, whether it's a very small thing, you know, sitting in the toy box as a kid, uh, or, um, you know, nearly losing somebody to drug addiction, um, they all cover the same, they all hold the same amount of space. And there's something about that that shifts one's perception of experience. So I didn't make new connections so much as I found new language because of the nature of the form. Does that make sense? 
It does. It does. And it's also, it must be so exciting to get this deep into your life and find that new language. It's like you're articulating your life in a new way. Like, hallelujah. Oh my God. I can't believe you just said that. And I'll tell you why later. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. It's, um, there's, there's a different feeling with this book. Like I have sort of found in the writing of it, a kind of, uh, grace. How's that for a word? A kind of grace. That's actually one of my favorite words. Mm, mm-hmm. Something that you said earlier too, in the very beginning also reminded me of a line that you had in here. You were talking about sort of articulating your life in this new way as you were writing these and and putting the pieces together in in a way. And I have in my notes that in one of the sonnets early on, you have a line that says, does language eclipse feeling? And I wanted to ask you about that. Oh, yeah. Does language eclipse feeling? Does it eclipse the eclipse? I think I really do entertain that as a question, and I'm not sure if language eclipses feeling, but at this point in my life, language has been my devotion. It's the thing that has lasted. Marriage didn't last, and everything has been fluid in my life, Uh, commitment to places and jobs and all that stuff. But language has always been there. And I'm really interested in something the poet Gregory Orr has written about poetry as as sort of the most made thing, the most made form, made as in making a a pot or making a painting. It, It is an aesthetic thing. And so if you think of the, your first response to an event or to a, a trauma even as roiling feelings and then moving those forth through time and considering them and intellectualizing them and theorizing them and all that, the final stage really is poetry. And in that sense, he talks about it as poetry as a, a healing act for those who have experienced trauma, which is just about everybody at this point, because it's no longer in you. You have made a thing with it. And that thing is a container that holds the experience and your your thoughts and understanding of it in outside of you. Okay, so that's a long way of saying, I think maybe language does eclipse feeling or getting cases feeling. And in fact, if I've gotten older, I notice I'm less at the mercy of my feelings because of having had a writing practice most of my life that I have this thing I can do that begins to make meaning or even meaninglessness out of experience. And and so in that way, when I am long gone, I hope some of my language remains and eclipses even me. Well, I want to read some and talk about it. But before we do that, I just want to talk about all of the things that came out at me through 
this collection and and you are you're talking about a whole life so I'm not going to get to all of it but for our listeners you speak of the ideas of impermanence you have friends of yours that come up again and again and past lovers you talk about music and trauma and addiction and beauty like almost the search for beauty so big that you want to go into oblivion um, drowning you talk to and about a lot of poets your childhood water comes up a lot lambs jesus the bible you have a lot of references to or at least a few to milkweed and darkness and and what is language and mortality how do we live more fully old tv shows um famous asshole men (laughs) does that is that fair to say that list Oh, I love the list, and I'm impressed by the list. You are a good reader of poetry. Um, Yeah, I think that's a lot of it. Parenting, parenting. Um, But, yeah, I love how the list encapsulates both experiences and images, because for me, they, they hold almost the same amount of emphasis. There's more... Um, in my life that I didn't address here. In a lot of ways, it's sort of a lightened up version. (laughs) sad to say. But it's the version that ultimately what I care about is, is it working as a collection of poetry? And it's the version of my life that worked as a collection of poetry. So this, uh, what, how do I want to say this? This isn't about oh, I have this burning need to tell my life story. This is about um, how can experiences, how can life events become an opportunity for a certain kind of an approach to language? And that sounds kind of cold, but and in a way it is. It's that coldness that uh, I appreciate as part of the experience of writing poems because it keeps you from burning up. I have a poem in here that I thought might be a nice place to start just to get into the rhythm of it all, but I okay. don't want to eclipse something that a place <laughs> that you might want to start. So do you have a place? No, I'm with- No, I'm with you, man. Okay. I want to start with Here on the Edge. It's on page 14, and I'm wondering if you would read it. That's interesting because I've never read it out loud publicly. Isn't that interesting? It's the first wide-lined poem in the book, too. goes all the way to the edge. Here on this edge, I have had many diminutive visions that all at its essence is dove gray. Wipe the lipstick off the mouth of anything, and there you will find dove gray. With my thumb, I have smudged away the sky's blue and the water's blue and found when I kicked it with my shoe, even the sand at its essence is pelican gray. I am remembering Eden, how everything swaggered with color, how the hollyhocks finished each other's sentences, how I miss predatory animals and worrying about being eaten, how I missed being eaten 
how the ocean and the continent are essentially love on a terrible mission to meet up with itself. How even with the surface roiling, the depths are calmly nursing away at love. That look the late nurser gets in its eyes as it sucks a habitual complacent peace. How to mother that peace, to wean it, is a terrible career. And to smudge beauty is to discover ugliness. And to smudge ugliness is to be not backed by splendor. How every apple is the poison apple. How rosy the skin. How sweet the flesh. How to suck the apple's poison is the one true meal. The invocation and the Last Supper, how stillness nests at the base of wind's spine, how even gravestones buckle and swell with the tides, and coffins are little wayward ships making their way toward love's other shore. I think this is one of my favorites, so that's why I asked you to read it. Oh, I'm so glad. Tell me why. I think the language, definitely the last line and and kind of the hopefulness about what happens yeah. with the dead and also going so far back to our primordial beginnings and how animal we are and how that animalness is still in contrast to our ability to love. Yes. As I read it, just now, I thought, this is a really optimistic, not optimistic, but it is a very positive poem for me. And it's sort of theological, really. The camera really pulls back and it looks at everything from afar rather than being, rather than being kind of in the midst of it, rather than being in the soup of it. I think I read somewhere that you read the Bible a lot or were given the Bible a lot to read when you were a kid. Is that right? And is that, does that influence you? Well, it's interesting because my parents were not religious in the least and didn't go to church, but I was always sort of fascinated and terrified of the Bible. And my father died young. I was seven when he died. And before he died, when they knew he was going to die, they decided that we should get baptized. I don't, I don't quite know why, but it's sort of like they got us a dog. I think they were trying to do the things that would help us through, they thought. They were young. They didn't know what was going on. And I refused to get baptized because the church that was going to baptize us does a full immersion baptism. And I was afraid to put my head underwater, but I would constantly wander as a very young child from church to church. We lived in a small village and looking for something and I was saved at least seven times. So I was always on the lookout 
for for something. I think for the elation of salvation, for the intensity of that experience, that it never took, unfortunately, or fortunately, I guess. My uh, dad's mom became a Jehovah's Witness as part of what she was doing to cope with his illness and alcoholism and in her family and all. And she kind of wielded the religion over me in a, in a terrifying way. And so the images became very intense. Um, And really maybe I guess they were my first, first real exposure to the power of mythic images to represent and hold the level of feeling that I walked around with all the time. So I didn't experience um, Jesus, for instance, as a comfort. I experienced Jesus as a threat. Um, that I, I would never live up to what was required to go to heaven. Um, I'd always be found out as lacking, all of that stuff. So it wasn't really a comforting thing, but it was a mystifying thing that uh, kept me on my toes for most of my childhood. Did you start writing then? I started writing in um, early early adolescence. And um, I guess after being fascinated with religion, when that was over, and, you know, that that sort of ended when, after my dad died over the, the years, ministers would come to our house to try to, lure us into salvation I guess they thought we would be an easy pick and uh, my mom would stay out in the kitchen and listen in on me arguing with the ministers about faith and justice so once I started arguing and sort of knocking down the arguments of uh, Christianity, then I, that part of my mind took over. So um, then I turned to poetry, I guess. And it was in typing class where I had a very cool typing teacher who basically said, do whatever you want. Uh, to me in particular, and because I wanted to type poems. And that's where I started writing poems in typing class with no left margin, with no rules. I knew I knew nothing about poetry. I just knew the need and the excitement around language. That's That's what I knew. When I was offered the typewriter, Images, thoughts, ideas could move directly from my mind into my hands. And it was just a revelation. Well, you were talking about, you know, writing in Jesus. It reminded me of one of your poems, 
things feel partial. Oh, yeah. Um, that's a poem where, you know, the note I wrote in the end was sort of this question of how do we love fully? I don't have um, yes. an answer for that, but I'm wondering if you want to read it and we can talk about it and maybe talk a little deeper about your process for writing it. Things feel partial. My love for things is partial. Mickle on his last legs, covered in chaos lesions, demanded that I see the beauty of a mass of chrysanthemums. Look, he demanded. I lied that I could see the beauty there, but all I saw was a smear of yellow flowers. I wanted to leave that place. I wanted to leave him to die without me. And soon that's what I did. Even the molecule I allowed myself to feel of our last goodbye made me scream. What would have happened if I'd opened my heart all the way as I was told to do if I wanted Jesus to live inside one of its chambers? Whitman told me to unscrew the locks from the doors, unscrew the doors themselves from their jams. Let love come streaming in, like when the St. Joe flooded Save-A-Lot and drove it out of business, the only store in town. Don't put my ashes in the river, Mickle said. Put them in a tributary. I did. I put them in a tributary without touching them. Now I want to chop my fingerprints with them, but it's too late. I want to hold them like he held me and touched my upper lip and called it Cupid's cusp, a phrase that made me wince. I felt love all the way then and never since. So obviously you have a lot in there. You have memories from childhood. You have um, how how your relationship with to Jesus might relate to poetry. You have your friend, Mikkel. So what were you thinking about when you actually started writing this? And how how did you start fitting the pieces together? And, and what does it mean for you? I think most poets would probably tell you that I, I never feel... I never know where I'm going with the poem. If I know where, I, where I'm going to end up, I'm already screwed um, because the energy in poems comes from the force of discovery. So usually when I begin a poem, I, what I have is a first line or two. And in this case, it came out of just a realization that my love feels so often partial or or not full in the way I was capable of loving when I was young. And maybe that's part of the survival of, of different kinds of traumas that you learn to hold back. And so that realization came into the lines, things feel partial. My love for things is partial. And that led me somehow to Mickle that that scene of um he was he was dying of AIDS in San Francisco. I was living in Michigan. I had a 
very young child. And Mikko called me and said he wanted me to come there to, to see me before he died. And I didn't want to go. I did not want to go. But for various reasons, I made myself go. But the whole time I was there, I felt myself holding back, holding back. At one point, he went to take a nap, and he called me in to his room and patted the bed next to him, and I couldn't do it. I just couldn't do it. It Partly, it was very almost strangely aligned with the last time I saw my father. When I was seven, he was in the hospital. And they normally didn't let, let kids visit, but because he was getting to the end, they let my sister and I visit. And so he was in the bed and he padded the bed next to him. And I didn't want to go sit by him, but I did. But I, I just felt like I was going to explode with sorrow. And so here Mikkel was, same situation, same pad on the bed. And I found myself sh shutting down. And so when I thought about that, my, my fear, even my fear of his illness, I, I, I saw that um, as I worked my way through the poem, that really since I was very young, I couldn't let love come streaming in like when the St. Joe's flooded save a lot. I, I, I had a, I put up a wall, which I understand if it was anybody else, I would forgive it because I understand why the wall was built, but I'm sorrowful that I couldn't, be there all the way with him. Now I realize what I lost, what I lost in not being able to fully be with him in, in those moments. So I want to hold his ashes like he held me and touched my upper lip and called it Cupid's cusp, a phrase that made me wince. I felt love all the way then and never since. That's quite a rugged realization. And it came because I had to find a rhyme with wince. <laughs> That's what I mean by the discovery that comes from adhering to form. I wanted the rhyme at the end of the sonnet. I came to called it Cupid's Cusp, a phrase that made me wince. And then the line was just born out of that music, out of that sound. I felt love all the way then and never since. And that was really the truth of it that I don't think I could have gotten to without the sonnet. You mentioned not being able to sit at your dad's bed because you would explode from sorrow and this idea that yeah. the trauma had built a wall in you. 
And I had tears in my eyes when you were saying that. And I'm wondering if when you write poems like these, if there are moments where that wall falls down and the sorrow comes in. Yeah. Um, it's such a good question because in a way this is, I'm just, I mean, I'm, I'm answering as honestly as I can in the moment as I would when I'm writing a poem in a way, the poem is a wall. Isn't that weird? Um, language eclipses feeling there and so it's a I can come to the the understanding that I felt love all the way then and never since I mean that holds a lot but when I'm writing I'm thinking about craft I'm thinking about making I'm not collapsing in into feeling because if I did I couldn't write the poem I mean that's the that's a sort of function of the poem it shores you up to do the work that holds something maybe more lasting than the ephemeral quality of a feeling maybe it memorializes a feeling in a way. But when I'm writing, I generally don't feel like when I wrote this poem, I wasn't like on the verge of imploding. I was working on the poem. Yeah, that makes so much sense. And it's super fascinating, I think. Like yeah, the idea, yeah. the idea that the poem is a wall, it makes a hundred percent sense. And I get it. And it's almost like the reader, they can crawl into your mind, but they, yeah, it's like, there's, there's something that you, that it seems like it would be impossible to let go completely when you write a poem. And the only way to, to let that go completely is to not write a poem. Yeah. If you let go completely in writing a poem, I think what you would do is just babble, <laughs> you know? And I guess in writing a poem, it isn't an unloading of feeling that the reader can connect with. It's the shaping of feeling in a way that allows the reader to discern it and say, oh yeah, I I get that. I I know that. I've I've felt that. Or I haven't, you know, what a cold bitch she is. Maybe that's what they're thinking. It's a very strange part of how I am made now. I was born a very, maybe all children are born, just an open vessel and very, very sensitive to the immediate, the immediacy of feeling and connection. Poems can create that almost more for others than for me. I can, it, it can be a facsimile of that openness. 
but it's not the same thing as being open. You also write in, in your poem, I've Encountered the Exoskeleton, that when you write the poem so passionately, once it's out there, that the passion is gone. It's not exactly yes. what you're talking about now, but it's adjacent to it. It is. It is very much. That's a great connection you're making. Um, I've encountered the exoskeleton of a book I wrote or poem or word I passionately laid upon the page. The passion's gone. The word looms, ambered, hunched, uncanny, dead-eyed, gold, light, shines through it like a lithophane. I have wanted to dig up the dead to see what's left, would almost rather meet the shell than the soul, break the frozen ground, burial, vault, box they house them in, which could be reduced to bronze handles, hinges, and screws. The body just an armful of kindling or handful of blue fibers from the designated suit. The list of pallbearers still in a drawer somewhere and the alternates in case someone couldn't stomach bearing the corpse from hearse to church and back to hearse and then to graveside. The story played out in rectangular units like plant cells or jail cells or a of a career criminal or stations of the cross or that multi-hued jello concoction called funeral salad or uniform rooms and a Bauhaus dollhouse. What a weird poem. Why do you say that? <laughs> that list at the end. I mean, to go from I've encountered a book or poem I laid pat passionately upon the page, and and it is like an exoskeleton. It's it's a placeholder of a certain experience or uh, feeling. And I go from there to I wanted to dig up the dead to see what's left. So there again is that exoskeleton, you know, the body uh, up against the the poem or the soul. And, a, and I'm talking about my dad there, the body just an armful of kindling or handful of blue fibers from the designated suit the list of pallbearers. Uh, he, I have a list he made for my mom. You know, it's a well, blue suit, blue striped tie, and who should be the. I mean, he's having to. He's thirty-six years old, having to think of this shit. You know, and then you know it goes from there to alternate call bears in case someone couldn't stomach bearing the corpse from hearse to church and back to hearse and then the story played out and here we go again with the the very structure of of the book the rectangular units and I, and so i enumer enumerate them plant cells jail cells stations of the cross there's jesus or that jello concoction called funeral salad or uniform rooms in a Bauhaus dollhouse 
I really do end on just these images of uniformity, which up against the depth of the loss of a father is so strange to me as I look at it now. How long does it usually take you to write a poem or is that not a fair question because they're all so unique? I have to say, I'm pretty fast. In earlier books, especially my last book, because it was, it really, each poem did a lot of work and sometimes required research because it was about painting um, and art making. Um, Those took me longer. These poems, a lot of times, you know, I would write in a matter of minutes and then, of course, tinker with them and get them right. But it was almost like they wrote themselves. There's a certain kind of, you know, this is where I am open, a certain kind of openness that you can get to as, uh, when you're writing that you trust what comes. It comes in. It, it's not something you're inventing or chipping out of granite. It, it's something that arrives. And then you just kind of fly with it. You write a lot about your son who has dealt yeah. with addiction, um, had suicide attempts. You had a poem in there where you had a line, and I don't know if I was reading into into this, but I loved the idea it left me with. You were talking about when you were in labor with him um, and you were yes. talking to your, your ex-husband and you were in the 48th hour of labor. But then as you talk about his life, I got this sense that you were talking about how once you have a kid, you're kind of in labor with them forever. Yes. You're, that's, so, that's so right. Yes. Do you talk to him at all about writing poems about him or is that just oh yes yeah we talk I mean we talk every day and we talk about poems all the time and the poems the sequence in the book that are sort of dialogues between the two of us they really are co-created they I took conversations that we had online so they're written and basically just um, selected and shaped real conversations that became sonnets. So there is this, you know, it's kind of like you're teasing out the hidden artfulness even in a conversation. And there is a beauty, an artful beauty to those conversations. Even when they're difficult, there's almost a choreography in them. But yeah, we talk about everything. I mean, I think if you've gone through addiction, maybe especially with a child, but with anybody, um, the only pathway forward is, is honesty. And we've learned to be very honest. In the middle of the book, you have a pullout page. I almost want to call it like a pop-up book <laughs> um, yeah. where you have two poems and the, the page is like folded in half and you pull it out. So it's double the length of the page. And yeah. it's because the lines in those poems are so, so long. And so I'm yes. wondering about like form following function a little bit. Like, did you have two poems with wor- with lines that long so you could use both sides of this page? 
And uh-huh. was it was it a conundrum at first to figure out how to deal with it? Boy, you're smart. Um, yes, yes, yes. Um, I had the poem on the front part of the centerfold um, uh, that was um, initially a piece of sort of flash nonfiction. Um, and it, it begins, um, it's a, it's about throwing two crackheads out of his, my son's apartment, um, literally physically throwing them out and what it took. And, um, so I had this big piece and I just experimented with putting it into 14 lines, what it would take. And it took this gigantic page to make that work. And so luckily I have this great press, Gray Wolf Press, and a great editor, executive editor, Jeff Schatz, who I said, you know, is there any way that we could turn this into a centerfold? And and he agreed. He he really was willing to try it. So then we had the problem of the page on the back. And the piece on the back was written by my son. Um, and it was written in response to my question about what it's like to be on disability. And so it felt to me like a really good two sides of the coin experience. That is, here's what I went through and here's him commenting on his own experience. When I showed Dylan's piece to Jeff, uh, the editor, he thought it was the perfect solution. You know, I asked a lot of questions about poems that I wanted to talk about, but if there's one that you want to talk about, um, we can. Well, I could talk about the last poem in the book. Yeah. So it's about my own death, which, you know, it seemed like in a book about your life, you needed to encounter your own death. I did anyway. I hope when it happens, I have time to say, oh, so this is how it's happening. Unlike Frank, set by a chief on Fire Island, but not like Dad, who knew too long, six goddamn years in a young man's life, so long it made a sweet guy sarcastic. I want enough time to say, oh, so this is how I'll go, and smirk at that last rhyme. I rhymed at times because I wanted to make something pretty, especially for Mikkel, who liked pretty things, soft and small things, who cried into a white towel when I hurt myself. When it happens, I don't want to be afraid. I want to be curious. Was Mikkel curious? I'm afraid by then he was only sad. He had no money left, was living on green oranges, had kissed all his friends goodbye. I kissed lips that kissed Frank's lips, though not for me a willing kiss. 
I willingly kiss lips that kissed Howard's deathbed lips. I happily kiss lips that kiss lips that kissed Basquiat's lips. I know a man who said he kissed lips that kissed lips that kissed lips that kissed lips that kissed Whitman's lips. Who will say of me, I kissed her? Who will say of me, I kissed someone who kissed her? Or I kissed someone who kissed someone who kissed someone who kissed her. Do you want to share anything else about that? (laughs) Well, I mean, a, a whole part of the book and of my work, in my writing, my my poetry, my whole life, is to sort of add myself and my people to the conversation, to the lineage. And you know, Frank O'Hara, he he was a white man. He was a he was a gay white man at a time when being gay was not well, still not not an easy life or or bargain but he moved to new york out of a rural situation and felt free he felt freed up and he you know he had his other he had his male poet and artist companions and he had a kind of swagger and arrogance about what he knew and his education and and his uh, his correctness, I guess, his rightness, and people from my people don't have that kind of swagger. Or if you have it, it takes a lifetime to earn it. And um, there's so many ways in which I'm not sort of correct. Sometimes my grammar is wrong. Sometimes I, you know, I don't look right or act right. or, And yet somehow I've managed to, to, I've kind of worked my way into the conversation. And it took a lot of work. It takes a lot of work to stay in the conversation. And so this lineage that comes at the end of that poem through kissing is me kind of saying, you know, will I be remembered? And will I be remembered through that that intimate lineage of kissing? Will I be part of the intimate DNA of poetry? Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? Yes. Well, I thought that I would read a little poem by Frank O'Hara because it ha- he had so much influence on the style of um, that I integrated into this book. And this is a poem called Animals. And he just has so much charm. I, he's so charming. Have you forgotten what we were like then when we were still first rate and the day came fat with an apple in its mouth? It's no use worrying about time. 
but we did have a few tricks up our sleeves and turned some sharp corners. The whole pasture looked like our meal. We didn't need speedometers. We could manage cocktails out of ice and water. I wouldn't want to be faster or greener than now if you were with me. Oh, you were the best of all my days. Do you want to share a little more about that? Oh, I just, I love it. <laughs> um, I love that looking back, looking back is just so powerful. I don't know why Lot's wife had to be turned into a pillar of salt. Who doesn't look back? And I love him looking back with this other, have you forgotten what we were like then when we were still first rate? I I feel like this is something that I would say to Mickle. Um, or, you know, uh, my my college roommate, soulmate, um, who, you know, we just had a hell of a time together and did all kinds of stupid ass stuff. And the day came fat with an apple in its mouth. <laughs> you know, life served itself up on a platter for us. Um, the whole pasture looked like our meal. We didn't need speedometers. We could manage, when I read we could manage cocktails out of ice and water, I was remembering how my college roommate and I made pizza out of Bisquick. <laughs> and, um, you know, just how you can manage something awesome out of nothing. And then that last stanza takes me into to a deeper feeling. I wouldn't want to be faster or greener than now if you if you were with me. Oh, you were the best of all my days. That then we realize it's kind of an elegy to a relationship that is no more. And actually, at the in the acknowledgments and Frank. I say something like to Mickle, I wouldn't want to be faster or greener than now if you were with me. Oh, you were the best of all my days. Can you read something you wrote that was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft? Well, yes. Um, and it's not poetry. I have an, an essay out in Poets and Writers magazine called Restless Herd some thoughts on order and life. Writing essays for me is really a struggle. It's really hard. But um, this part especially was a struggle and I really had to work on it, work within myself to, to write it. It would be 12 years after It Blows You Hollow, my first book, not for lack of trying, before I got a second book into the world wolf lake white gown blown open the first book pink cover butcher knife and all had taught me to have ambition for my work writing poems and binding them into something like wholeness even a wholeness that reflected the implosion of the life i knew the life my son knew became the singular occupation outside of earning a living and raising Dylan that gave me a sense of a future. 
it is often the case, don't ask me why, that spouses, partners, lovers need to construct the person they are leaving as well worth leaving. Maybe it's an act of self-justification, a way to live with themselves. Maybe calling home one's projections requires a kind of violence. When he broke up with me, my first boyfriend in seventh grade made a paper mache sculpture of me in art class with the word monster scrawled in white paint over the hulking black form. My husband left me with little but this. He told me he had secretly considered me for years a monster. This would inspire in me not the wish to prove him otherwise, but as Gregory Orr writes, to go further into the gift of my monstrousness, not through monstrous deeds, but through ferocity of imagination, empathy, audacity, fealty to the craft. And tell me more about why you chose that. Because... To make the admission in writing, chiseling it in stone, that is going to be public, that I was called a monster, I mean, that's pretty tough. Where that image goes in the essay is interesting, I think. But, you know, I think something I learned along the way is that my favorite books in which there is a first-person speaker, um, you know, that's assumed to to be me, the writer, you, um, the, the stuff I love the most are people who don't think they're right all the time and who don't see themselves as heroic. And it's hard, you know, to show yourself as flawed, tremendously flawed, to have had the person, you know, that you, a person that you loved and who loved you say that they had seen you as monstrous. I mean, my God, it, it really kind of cracked through what I understand about romantic love and and what its foundations are. So to admit that, that was the hard part. Where do you write? I write in my living room on a table that a former student built for me out of wood from a a building that collapsed. What do you do? (laughs) What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? I don't know that I ever get away, even in my dreams. So much of writing is taking place in my head that it's hard to ever stop. But I guess, you know, it feels like to get away from writing would be like getting away from my body. Maybe when I'm playing uh, cards. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? Oh, well, it's kind of a trinity. Um, My mom, who's 91, my son, and um, Jane Huffman, a young writer who uh, is also a friend and former student. And she's just an incredible editor. She, she is the editor of a magazine called Guest House. And I am poetry editor there. And um, she just, she catches me in all my wrong moves. She's, she's a great reader. How have you dealt with rejection? 
Well, I think I learned kind of early on to use it as a signal to look back at the work and think about it more and refine it. So I think it's important for writers or artists of any kind to not think of rejection as some sort of psychological event, to think of it as an opportunity for refinement. And what is your favorite word? And I kind of think I might know now. I kind of think you do. Hallelujah. It's so weird you said that. I thought, oh my God, because it just came to me. It's hallelujah. I because I think it's funny. I think it I don't I don't really even know, know what in the hell it means. But it's such a great celebratory word that you know, it holds so much feeling just in how it sounds. It kind of feels like onomatopoeia. Yes. Yeah. It's like whoop de doo you know? <laughs> I think, yeah, it, it's religious, but I don't know how. Hallelujah. And you can spice it up, too, with all kinds of other syllables that are naughty if you want. Well, thank you so much for your time. I'm so appreciative. This has been incredible and um, incredibly deepening. So thank you so much for inviting me. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing. My guest was Diane Seuss, author of the poetry collection, Frank Sonnets. If you like today's show, check out my interview with Kim Adonizio, where we discussed her book, Bukowski in a Sundress, which is a memoir told in essays about sobriety and its opposite, death, writing, fame, and more. You can find that interview and the entire First Draft archive of 300 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft A-D-O-W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free, ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interview that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips from my guests, and more. Join me as I reach for honesty, vulnerability, connection, curiosity, and insights on craft with each episode. I can't tell you enough how much each and every single dollar counts in keeping the show alive. The first tier of support is just $6 a month. So please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Coming up in the next few months on First Draft, interviews with S. Kirk Walsh, Joshua Henkin, Christine Mangan, and Kevin McElvoy. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. Please stay healthy and safe. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.